In the late 1970s, a copy of the long-lost Gospel of Judas. Have you ever heard of it? The Gospel of Judas was stolen from an Egyptian tomb. Um, the, this particular Gospel dates back to the 2nd century. 2nd century A.D. with the rise of Gnosticism that had a very low view of the material world. In fact, it considered the material world as evil. In fact, our physical bodies are evil and they need to be released. Our spirits need to be released from this physical and material body. That is what they understood to be salvation. It was Gnosticism. In fact, the great theologian Irenaeus spoke against and wrote against this very gospel, the gospel of Judas, because he said it was in conflict with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, the four gospels. Even though, just as a side, Dan Brown, Dan Brown, who wrote the heretical, and it is, it's pure heresy and terrible historical, um, you know, assertion, Dan Brown makes the case that the four Gospels were dependent on the Gospel of Judas and other Gnostic Gospels. Well, that's just bad history and it's bad theology because... The gospel of Judas is no gospel at all. In this particular so-called gospel, uh, the angels create the physical world. And Jesus Christ is just a physical manifestation of this great angel named Seth. And Jesus comes to save Human spirits by enlightening them, okay? That's what salvation is. Um, there's no interest in saving the whole person because our bodies are evil, all right? In fact, perhaps the worst part of the Gospel of Judas is that there's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of the resurrection from the grave. Why? Because... For the Gospel of Judas, that was nonsense. Judas is the hero, in fact, in the Gospel of Judas. He's doing Jesus a favor by betraying him. In fact, it's a deal they worked out together. He would betray Jesus and have Jesus killed so he could be delivered from his physical body. So Judas is a hero in the Gospel of Judas. But as you know, the Gospels don't treat Judas as a hero. Um, any more than they treat the human body, the physical body, as evil. In fact, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates above everything that the body is a part of God's good creation and a, a part of God's plan uh, as He makes all things new. And ironically, Judas is going to play a role in that, but not as a favor to Jesus, but as complicit in His murder. Now, we're in the middle of the most important week in the history of the world. It's what we call Passion Week. And at this particular point, uh, the crowds are getting larger and larger as they make their way to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16 tells us that the Passover had to be observed in the, temp or the, the precincts of the city. And so all these people are coming to Jerusalem. And... What is Jesus doing as the crowds are making their way to Jerusalem? Well, Luke tells us at the end of chapter 21, every day he was teaching in the temple, 
And at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. That was his schedule during Passion Week. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Luke shows us what Jesus is doing, how he is spending his last days and nights before he dies. And in fact, if you look just quickly over in chapter 19, verse 47, you see the same thing. He was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now keep in mind, Jesus is not at the wrong place at the, right, the wrong time. He's in Jerusalem for a purpose. He came to die. Now we see all the way back in chapter 9, Verse 51, that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus did not come to give us an example to follow, okay? He didn't come for a moral reformation. He came for a mortal resurrection. He didn't come just to give us a good example so that we can ask, what would Jesus do? We don't need a better version of ourselves. We need a Savior. Jesus came to die. He came to be crucified on a Roman cross and take the wrath of God, the justice of God, the judgment of God in our place. That's the gospel. That's why He is here. But before His death, He teaches. Isn't that remarkable? Leading up to His death, He is spending His time teaching. Now what does He teach? We're not left to speculate. If you look back in chapter 20, this is probably taking place just a day or so before our present text. Chapter 20, verse 1, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. That's what He was doing. He was teaching the gospel. Now, at this point in redemptive history, He is pointing forward. He is speaking about what He will do he is speaking about the fact that he is going to die on a cross and he's going to be raised from the grave and he is going to usher in the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. If you don't understand the gospel, you cannot be saved. The gospel is the doing and the dying and the rising and the ruling of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we pray. That's why we sing the gospel during worship. That's why we pray the gospel. And that's why we preach the gospel and we teach the gospel. We are gospel people. Our whole identity, our whole hope is bound up in the fact that Jesus Christ came as our substitute, our representative. He lived the life we could not live and He died the death that we deserve and He was raised from the grave so that we could experience pardon and the forgiveness of sins. That's what He's teaching as He is leading up to the cross. And it says here the people were enthralled by this. Early in the morning, all the people came to him to hear him because he spoke as one who had authority. And we see here that uh, it reminds us of the centrality of the Word of God in the kingdom purposes of God. Because up to his death, Jesus is doing that very thing. And that if we want to ask, what would Jesus do? That's a good question to ask here. Jesus is caught up in the Word of God. This is what He is centered upon. It's what He's majoring upon. It's what He's investing His time in. And if we are kingdom people, that's where our time and investments will be 
as well. But Jesus' teaching, which is centered on the gospel, ironically has no ground and no basis, if not for the evil that's going to happen next. That's the remarkable thing. In the providence of God, in the good and the wise providence of God, for Jesus' teachings to make any sense, the evil that's about to happen has to happen. And that brings us to the first point of our text. The hill bruising plot planned. Verses 1 to 6. You go, what in the world? A hill bruising plot. Well, that takes us back to the first gospel promise in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. Where God looks to the serpent and He says... The seed of the woman will crush your head. Now, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And we see this heel bruising plot being unfolded before our very eyes right here in chapter 22. Look with me in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now about 1,470 years prior to this day, this night, Passover night of Passion Week, Moses had delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. This is very likely 30 A.D., all right? And around 1440 B.C., Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And they had been saved, literally, by slaughtered lambs, Passover lambs. After sending many plagues to Egypt to loosen the Pharaoh's tyrannical hold on Israel, God sent the last plague. And you know the story. That last plague was unleashed and it was His wrath. It was His judgment. It would come down on everyone. This judgment was coming down on the Egyptians and it was coming down on the Israelites. It could not pass over the Israelites just because they were Israelites. It passed. This judgment was coming on everyone. Why? Because the wages of sin is death and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. This judgment was coming to every house in Egypt. In every town and in every house, this judgment, this wrath was going to fall. And the only way of escape was to put your faith in God's provision, His substitute. You had to slay a lamb, and you had to take the blood of that lamb, and you had to sprinkle it on the doorpost of your home. And in every home that night, Keep this in mind. In every home, not just the the Gentile Egyptians, but, but including the Israelites as well, in every home there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. If that bothers you, it should. Not because God is not righteous, 
He is righteous. He is holy. And He is just. And He is good. And the fact that He's good means He has to judge sin. It should bother us because that's what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. And the fact that Israel had to slay a lamb was just the indication that they deserved the same judgment that fell on the Egyptians, except for the substitute. And so every home had this wrath fall. And when justice fell, either it would fall on your home, or you could take shelter in the substitute. If you fled to the substitute, if you fled to the shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. If you refused that substitute, wrath came. After that, the Jews were commanded to remember the Passover. And so the Passover meal is a meal commemorating uh, that night the angel of death passed over the homes that were covered by the blood. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's connected to the Passover. Remember, when they were to flee out of Egypt, uh, it was to be such a hasty thing, they, did, they didn't have time for their bread to rise, and so they wouldn't put the, the leaven in the bread. It was unleavened bread. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover. And it was a seven-day-long, a week-long celebration which reminded them of what God had done for them in delivering them from Egyptian bondage. In the New Testament times, this Passover was so connected to uh, this uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread that they were seen as one and the same. And what they would do is they would take this year-old, unblemished male lamb or goat... And they would take it to the temple and it would be ritually sacrificed in the temple in the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan. And then when the sun set, when, when the sun had come down, you would have them eating this sacrificed lamb on what would be known as the 15th of Nisan in all the family gatherings inside the walls of Jerusalem. And as I said, according to Deuteronomy 16, it was required that they observe this Passover in Jerusalem. Which means you would have this influx of hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus noted that in 66 AD, there were some two and a half million pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem. And the prospect of that many people coming under the influence of this man claiming to be the Son of God was too much to take for the Jewish leaders. And that brings us to verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now this plan to kill Jesus had been a long-standing plan. Back in Luke 4, the first time Jesus even preaches in Nazareth, they try to throw him over a cliff. Alright? Um, so this has been a, a plan that we saw even in chapter 19. It is a plan that they have been, that's been in place for some time. And Jesus had known this. He knew this before he ever went to Jerusalem. 
Remember, I said chapter 9, verse 51 is the turning point of the book. That's where he sets his face to Jerusalem. But some 30 verses prior to that, chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the grave. He made that prophecy back in chapter 9, so he knew what he was in for. So this wasn't new. But what is new is that this hate and these murderous desires, by the way, when your sin goes unchecked, it takes you further than you ever dreamed you would go. This hate and these murderous desires have reached fever pitch. At this point, the question is not whether Jesus should die. The question is the means. And it had to be under the radar. Why? Mark chapter 14 tells us they were fearful that it would cause an uproar with the crowds. But there's something more to it than that. What was behind their hatred of Jesus? Well, Matthew 27, verse 18, Mark chapter 15, verse 10, tell us. They were envious. That's behind the murderous desires. They were envious. They were jealous. Can you imagine? Envy taking you that far? Envy seems like such a harmless sin. But that's what he tells us. They were envious of Jesus. What is envy? It is discontentment and even resentment at someone who has something you don't have. And envy, let's be perfectly clear here, is not the real problem. It is not the real problem. Envy is a symptom. Alright? Like if you are coughing, your cough is a symptom, okay? It may be that you've got something going down in your chest. Envy is a sin, but it's a symptomatic sin. It is a surface level sin. The real issue is idolatry. Behind envy is idolatry. So when I'm envious, have you ever been envious? When I'm jealous, it's a synonym, what that tells me is that I am seeking my identity in something that's not Jesus. And that person that I'm jealous of has more of that thing than I do. Alright? So what I experience in the envy, that is a symptom that I have a functional idol that is competing for my allegiance for Jesus. So jealousy and envy is a serious business. It takes us all the way back to the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now let me illustrate this. If I don't find my identity in something, then it's impossible for me to be jealous. I don't find my identity in being a great singer. And that's to your benefit. Alright? And so if I, if I hear a great singer, there's no jealousy. There's no envy. I don't find my identity in that. But let me tell you something I've struggled with, and I've shared this with you before. 
For the longest time in my life, I struggled with the idolatry of football. And I know some of you are sitting there, well, that's just so strange. Well, tell me, your idols are strange too. All right? But I found, I found my identity in football success. I know that to be the case because when I had the football success, I was the most big-headed, prideful human being you could ever imagine to be around. And when I didn't have it, despair. And when others had it and I didn't have it, jealousy and envy. Now, I believe through the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am overcoming that. Okay? If, if I were to ever write an autobiography, which I wouldn't because no one would buy it, including my parents. Uh, if I were to ever write an autobiography, the title of it would be The Memoirs of a Recovering Idolater. But even today, it rears its ugly head. I've got good friends that have experienced great success in the football world. One of my closest friends from my football days is a head coach at Clemson. And I'll see him on the sidelines and I hear about this new contract he signed and, and I see the success and that jealousy and that envy just rears its ugly head. Now, by the grace of God, I'm convicted by it. I see it for what it is. I don't minimize that sin. I hate it by the grace of God. And I confess it to the Lord. I claim the blood of Christ. I claim the righteousness of Christ. But it's still sin. That's envy. And these leaders, their identity was bound up in the fact that they wanted to be the religious elites. And they loved religious authority. And here this untrained man from Bethlehem, from Nazareth, has more of this religious um, fanfare than they do. He's stealing their thunder. And he speaks as one having authority and the masses are coming to him, hearing him teach about the kingdom of God and they cannot stand it. It is driving them mad. So what are they going to do about it? Well, unbeknownst to them, they're going to find a couple of allies. The devil and an apostle. One of the twelve. Look with me in verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was one of the number of the twelve. Now, Satan has been mentioned several times in Luke, just kind of off the cuff. You know, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 13. But he's kind of been floating under the radar since chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, he came and he assaulted Jesus frontally in those temptations. And we saw in that, where Luke, just before the temptation narrative... He, he gives us a genealogy. And he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, the Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 38. And so Luke is communicating that this is the true Adam, the last Adam, the second Adam, who will, who will obey unlike the first Adam. When the serpent comes, this Adam will obey God rather than disobey God. 
He will worship God rather than worship self. And so in Luke chapter 4, he overcomes the devil. And it says the devil left him until a more opportune time. Now is that opportune time. The devil, I think in a very real sense here, possesses Judas. Someone asked me this week, do you believe that uh, people can be devil-possessed? I absolutely believe people can be. I don't believe Christians can be devil-possessed. But if you're not a Christian, you are subject to devil possession. I believe that. And Judas was possessed. He was motivated. He was empowered. He was influenced by Satan because he was never a true believer. Judas was never a believer. But none of the other 11 had a clue. Isn't that interesting? None of the other 11 had the foggiest clue that Judas was an imposter. He had followed Jesus for three years just like the other 11. And that shows you how close a person can be to the kingdom of God. How close a person can be to Jesus and not be a true convert. I mean, think about this. He, he had followed Jesus for three years. He had heard His masterful, authoritative preaching and teaching. He had seen His compassionate and powerful miracles. He, he, had, he had experienced Christ's love and brotherhood. And it never stirred Him to repentance. That is a fearful thing to think about. Playing religion. And my fear is that this is rampant in evangelical churches in America. Playing religion without true repentance opens you up to Satan. And that is a very fearful thought for us. And here's the thing. I don't think Judas was even aware. I don't even think he was aware that he was possessed by the devil. I don't think that at all. Now keep in mind, this wasn't against Judas's will. Alright? He had opened himself up by playing games with his sin. Rationalizing his sin. Uh, failing to repent of his sins. And now he's opened the door. Now what was Judas's motive? How can you... Even if you're not a convert, how can you want to have your best friend killed? Well, there's a couple of motives here, I think. First of all, I think when Judas followed, initially started following Jesus, he had a misperception of who Jesus was. He believed that Jesus was going to be this political deliverer and Judas was going to be able to experience the fanfare of being with this great political deliverer. So he would have had some shared glory there. And by the time Jesus is done with the Olivet Discourse and he's spoken about the fact that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, it is very clear at this point that this is not the political deliverer he was hoping for. So he was disappointed in Jesus. And I believe there are many today who have this initial experience with Jesus. They may have prayed a prayer. They may have walked an aisle. Uh, they may have raised their hand with every head bowed and every eye closed with the music playing. But they did not truly understand who Jesus was. Nor what He came to do. And when Jesus does not accomplish for them what they thought He would accomplish for them, 
Best life now. When life hits a bump in the road, they turn their back on Him. Never, never truly saved in the first place. I think that was Judas. But I think there's something else here as well. I think that he is also motivated by money. In other words, the chief priest and the scribes, they were motivated by envy. Judas was motivated by greed. That is, he had a coveting, a covetousness heart. And that's going to be inferred in, in chapter or verse 5. But this also comports, I think, with John chapter 12. We'll have it on the screen here in John chapter 12. Now, keep in mind, John 12 occurs about five days prior to this. All right? About five days prior to Judas betraying Jesus. Listen to what John 12 tells us. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, you can see John's emotion here, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so we see here that just days before, Judas is revealing his true nature. Jesus had already warned about this in Luke chapter 12. He says, take care and be on your guard against covetousness because life consists in more than the abundance of many possessions. Now, if you had asked um, Jesus or Luke for that matter, what was behind this, what would have been their answer? Uh, what would Jesus have responded? Why? How can someone get to the point like Judas? I think Jesus' response, or even Luke's response, was a desire has taken control of your heart that has become your God. Uh, you know that because if you don't have that desire fulfilled, you become very angry, frustrated, despairing, jealous, envious, bitter. You become a victim that means something has controlled your heart that is competing for lordship with the Lord Jesus. Okay? And Judas had come to that place. And that idol had taken him further than he ever dreamed he would go. It was making him pay more than he ever thought he would pay. And it was making him stay longer than he ever thought he would stay. You see, not only does unchecked sin have consequences... But every time you sin, it reinforces this pattern of sinful behavior in your life. It becomes more of a pattern. And if you persist in this sin with the thought, and maybe you've been there, one day I'm going to deal with this. One day I'm going to repent. One day I'm going to get right with God. 
Okay? If you persist in that, with that thought, it may be that that day comes, and God is there to forgive you, but you're not there to repent. Sin can take you further than you ever dreamed you could go. And if you'd ask Judas leading up to this, Judas, do you have a problem? Is your heart set on an idol? He probably would have said, are you kidding me? I've been spending, I have spent the last three years with this man who does not even own a house. There are more lucrative things I could have been doing than following this man who has nothing. No material possessions. No, I don't have a problem. And such is the capacity for our hearts to, to deceive ourselves. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked. It is sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Well, look at me in verses 4 and 5. He went away, conferred with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. Matthew 26, verse 15, in fact, tells us that uh, Judas went to them and said, What will you give me if I betray him? And they agree on the 30 coins, thus exposing more of his idolatry. But what's sobering here is he was in charge of the money back, which means the disciples trusted him. I mean... That shows you how sinister sin is. You can have unrepentant, hidden sin and fool other people. Alright? There, there may be people here today. You have unrepentant, hidden sin and we are all fooled. I've told you about the man in Cincinnati that... Uh, that uh, when I was pastoring there, the elders at the church had discerned this man should lead our lay ministry. Okay, he was a faithful man in our church, a churchman. Just immersed in body life, loved the Word of God. So I called him one night on a Tuesday night and I said, look, can you, can you uh, lead our men's Bible study? And he said, man, I, I would love that. We determined that he would teach Ephesians. I was on the phone with him 45 minutes. Next morning I get a call from one of the elders. And he said, did you hear about Mike? I said, what do you mean, did I hear about Mike? I talked to him last night. They said, well, he, he got arrested at 9 o'clock last night. I got off the phone with him at 8.30. He'd gone down town Cincinnati to solicit what he thought was a 13-year-old girl. It was an undercover cop. He went to prison. He wrote a repentant. I believe he, I, I really believe he was repentant. Though there are severe consequences to sin, right? There's forgiveness. He wrote a, a letter to the elders. And here's the thing that, that blew me away in this, in this letter. He said that just two weeks earlier, he had gone on this road to Emmaus walk, where you have these pastors leading this lay ministry. And he had confessed for the first time in his life the sin of pornography to this pastor. And the pastor teared up and said, I have the same sin. I'm enslaved to the same sin. 
Here's a pastor of a church who's enslaved to pornography. He couldn't help out this guy who was enslaved to pornography. And two weeks later, he is doing things that were unimaginable. Okay? Such is the capacity to deceive God's people with hidden sin. But that sin will take you down paths you never envisioned. We need to learn from Judas, don't we? Note in verse 6. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him and to them in the absence of a crowd. That brings us to the, the second part of the passage and we will go through this very quickly. We saw the hill bruising plan. Now we're going to see the head crushing counter plan. The head crushing counter plan. Plot. This is the true intrigue. At this point, it looks like Judas. It looks like the devil. It looks like the religious leaders are in control. And they are far from in control. And that is the glory of what we see in this second part of this passage. Look with me in verse 7. Then they came the, the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepared? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. The lambs were sacrificed in mid-afternoon of the 14th of Nisan in the court of a priest in the temple. Uh, and Jesus is giving these details, or Luke rather is giving details about Jesus to show us that Jesus is in complete control of this situation. And as we're going to see more next week, this Passover meal was a type. It had been a type all the way back some 1440 B.C. Preparing God's people for the once for all sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice pointed us to the one who would come, who would die for our sins once for all. And so Jesus is planning to celebrate the last Passover ever with his disciples, which we'll look at next week. You say, well, what do you mean the last Passover? Don't they, pass, don't they celebrate Passover today? Yes, but not biblically. This was the last biblical Passover because the Passover pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would suffer in our place for our sins. That's why I say this is the head-crushing plan of the ages. The seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Now, it looks at this point that the leaders, the devil, Judas is in control... But they're simply playing in the hands of providence. That's what's remarkable about this passage. And now there's an indefiniteness to what Jesus says here. Go to this, you'll find a man. Uh, the reason there's an indefiniteness here, I believe, is because at this point, the disciples don't know what Judas is doing. And Jesus doesn't want the disciples to know specifically where the Passover meal will be sacrificed are offered and celebrated because he doesn't want Judas to know yet. Because there's a whole lot of things Jesus wants to do first. If Judas had learned early in the day where Jesus was going to be, he would have had Jesus arrested early. 
But there's some things Jesus wants to do first. He wants to, uh, he wants to experience and celebrate this feast with His disciples. He wants to institute what we now know as the Lord's Supper. He wants to wash their feet. We see that in John 13. To show them what true servant leadership is. He wants to give them what they call the supper room discourses. Chapter 14 to chapter 16 of John. He wants to pray the high priestly prayer. John chapter 17. There's a lot of things Jesus wants to do first. And if he's arrested too early, he won't be able to do these things. But there's still enough detail for the disciples to know what they're supposed to do. Notice verse 13 as we close. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Jesus is revealing it's not Judas, it's not the devil, it's not the, the religious leaders who are in control. Their scheme is being countered. This is a counter scheme. A counter conspiracy, if you will. This is Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Which providentially we look at tonight in our last study of Genesis. Joseph tells the brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. For the saving of many lives. What Judas intended for evil, God intended for good. What the religious leaders intended for evil, God intended for good. What the devil intended for evil, God intended for good for the saving of many lives. Lives like us. People like us who are more like the religious leaders in our jealousy and our envy than we are God. More people like us who are more like Judas in our greed and our covetous hearts than we are like God. He came to save people like us. And to do that, it will require that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become that Passover lamb who will be slaughtered, taking God's justice in our place. That is the plan of the ages.